This evening, congregation, our scripture reading will be taken from Genesis chapter 50. We'll be reading from verse 15 through verse 21. You can find that on page 60 in your pew Bible. After we read from the inspired Word of God from that portion, we'll then turn our attention to the Belgic Confession, which we believe is a faithful and accurate summary of the Word of God, to Article 13, and you can find that in your pew form and prayers booklet on page 165. We read then the narrative as we find it in Genesis, beginning at verse 15 of chapter 50, dealing with Joseph, and we read as follows. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. For am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Thus far our reading from Scripture. We then turn to the Belgic Confession, Article 13, entitled, the doctrine of God's providence, where we read as follows, we believe that this good God, after He created all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to His holy will, in such a way that nothing happens in this world without His orderly arrangement. Yet God is not the author of, nor can He be charged with, the sin that occurs. For His power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that He arranges and does His work very well and justly, even when the devils and wicked men act unjustly. We do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what He does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend. But in all humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us being content to be Christ's disciples so as to learn only what He shows us in His Word without going beyond those limits. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father. He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures under His control so that not one of the hairs on our heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought we rest, knowing that He holds in check the devils and all our enemies who cannot hurt us without His permission and will. For that reason, we reject the damnable errors of the Epicureans who say that God involves Himself in nothing and leaves everything to chance. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ If you think of 
the Old Testament Joseph for a moment, I would submit to you that there would hardly have been a person in human history who would not, from an earthly perspective, have more of a right to bear a grudge. Joseph could have borne a grudge. And he could have carried that grudge, especially against his brothers, all the days of his life. And that bitterness and that grudge could have amplified as he continued to experience what we may count as unfortunate circumstances. It was, on one hand, only a result of his brother's jealous enmity against him that he found himself thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, transported uh, under the guise of human trafficking, you might call it, to a foreign land where he was sold as a slave. And he could have looked back when he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and as he sat languishing, forgotten in prison, he could have looked back and he could have said, this is all because of my brothers. But then as he began his rise to a position of prominence, he could have plotted an evil scheme in his mind. He could have remembered his dream and the interpretation that his brothers would one day come and bow down before him, and he could have thought in his mind, when they come, When they come, then I will get back what they have taken from me. And his bitterness and his enmity could have boiled over into a hatred that his position of prominence then gave him the ability. And especially with the death of his father, he could have said, now my father won't know what I do to my brothers. But as we read the closing chapter of Genesis, we see something completely opposite. When his brothers come to him, fearful of what retaliation he might bring their way, he weeps at the very thought that they thought he was now going to retaliate against him. And with this remarkable statement, congregation, Joseph shows not only that he is a believer in providence, But he also shows something of the practical impact that his belief in providence had. He's able to say in the words there of Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me. He rightly understands the motives and the actions of his brothers. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order, so Joseph acknowledges that there's a purpose to God's providence in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Joseph understood God's sovereignty in the providence of all of the events in his own life and indeed in all of the events of human history. He also understood that there was a goal to that providence. And that that goal of providence was not that Joseph would always have the easiest life, but that God would so order all of the events within his life and within human life that the people of God might be saved. And that God, by the salvation of His people, might then be glorified. And I would submit to you tonight, 
that if we understand the doctrine, the truth, the reality of providence, it will help us to interpret the events that happen within our life in light of that one grand focal point of human history. The salvation of the children of God and the glorification of Christ. And so I want to consider with you tonight our belief concerning providence. Just a word about this theme. Uh, You'll notice, of course, there is some repetition week by week as we make our way through our series to the Belgian Confession. But the hour there points out that this is a distinct belief. Perhaps at the end of the article, Article 13, you uh, take note that the Epicureans are mentioned. And you could also mention Stoics, and you could mention the Deist. Uh, You could mention the Humanist. You could mention the Secularist. All of these isms that bottom, deny the doctrine of the providence of God. They deny that God is intimately involved in every single detail of our lives. All of these isms deny what Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will? The deist may say, yes, God created the sparrow, but when the sparrow falls, it's just a result of natural consequences. The secularist hardly even has any room for a conception about God. The Epicureans and the Stoics, they said, well, fate happens however it happens. The best thing is either to enjoy pleasure as much as you can or just to deal with fate as it unveils itself. But the Christian, the Christian has a different perspective. That's why our theme is our belief. The Christian belief. Believing in the one only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A sovereign God who has created all things and who continues by His unlimited power to uphold and govern all things. We believe something concerning providence. And we'll notice tonight, first of all, the scope of providence. And then secondly, the question with providence. And then thirdly, the consolation in providence. So the scope, the question, and then the consolation in relationship to the doctrine or the truth or the reality of providence. Providence, first of all, in its scope, is comprehensive and yet focused within its comprehensiveness. And what providence does, and by providence we just simply mean the ever-present and almighty power of God, the strength of God, whereby He, as by His hand, upholds all things. Everything that is created... God continues to uphold it. And that includes, boys and girls, you and me. Our bodies and our souls, our minds, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet. That includes the trees. That includes the planets, the sun, the moon, the stars. It includes the birds of the air. God has made them all, and He continues to uphold them all so that it is by His ever-present power that we, according to what Paul says in Acts 17, that we live and breathe and have our being. And so when you see a bird, uh, and perhaps the eagles as they return in something of their majestic glory as they soar in the heights of the heavens, it's the power of God that enables them to live. And it's the power of God that enables the wind currents to move and the birds of the air to soar upon those wind currents. This is what we mean when we speak about the comprehensive scope of the providence of God. Now, Reformed theologians have rightly identified three distinct elements within the providence of God. The first they often call preservation. 
And what we mean by that is it's the power of God that preserves every aspect of created order. But not only is there preservation, there is also a second element, sometimes called cooperation, other times called concurrence. And so, yes, our lives are preserved, but boys and girls, and your parents know this well, for our life to be preserved, we need food. God has created us that way, and God's power ordinarily works through the food that we receive. And that food underneath the power of God gives our physical bodies the life. Now the same is true spiritually. A God ordinarily supplies what we need for our spiritual life through the means of grace, which is why it is so vital and so important for a healthy and a mature Christianity to be diligent and frequent in the use of the means of grace. Because of what we call concurrence, cooperation, and this is Practical. This is not just abstract theology, but if we rightly understand the importance of a physical diet for physical health, then we'll also rightly understand through cooperation or concurrence that God is ordinarily pleased to support the life of our soul through the preaching of the Word and the reception of the sacraments. The third aspect of providence is that of government. And here what is emphasized is that God so orchestrates all of the events that make up human history. And He governs every single one of them so that they all work towards His one ultimate goal or plan, which is the exaltation of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are no random acts in human history. Now there are many acts within human history that given our limited insight, we do not understand. And that's why our author in the Belgian Confession, uh, taking scriptural truth uh, and putting it down in summary fashion, says that we are content. We are content to be followers of Christ. And we do not understand how every single event worked towards that one culminating goal of the exaltation of Christ uh, and of the elect. But by faith, we believe that there are no random acts within human history that are disconnected from the one ultimate goal that God has of the glorification of His Son. Now, certainly we understand something of the so-called natural laws within the order of creation, but they exist only by God's ever-present power. Boys and girls, you, you quickly in science class probably learn about the law of gravity. I won't do it here because it's not edifying. Uh, but if you take a Psalter hymnal and if you drop it, you know it's going to fall down to the ground. It does that because of the law of gravity. And that is certainly true. But the only reason there is a law of gravity is because there is a God of providence. And now God in His power at times can surpass the natural laws. And we call those miracles. And believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is able to perform miracles, especially during the time in which Jesus Christ exercises earthly ministry. And so we find the miraculous taking place at the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry as water is turned into wine. 
not through any type of fermenting process, but through a simple, powerful act of God. And we see the Lord Jesus Christ define the laws of gravity as He walks upon water. And so never doubt the power of our God. Even though He ordinarily works through the natural laws of concurrence or of cooperation, He is able, if He so desires, to accomplish His purposes to work supernatural miracles. And we just bring this out because this is at the very heart of the Christian faith. And what so often has happened, especially in the 19th century, in the 1800s, uh, with German higher criticism and liberalism, is that individuals who were just so in love with their own rationalistic ability, they began to deny the supernatural. And once you begin to deny the supernatural, the essence of Christianity is gone. I would often have my students in, in the Christian school back in Grand Rapids list the articles of the Apostles' Creed and then delete every one that involves the supernatural. And that's what you have left of Christianity if you deny the supernatural. Nothing. So when anyone questions the supernatural power of our Almighty God, let us be on high alert. Christian faith is at stake. God works ordinarily through natural laws. But He has not bound Himself to those natural laws. There is this comprehensive scope to providence that is focused upon the fulfillment of God's eternal will. If you want to think of the eternal decree before time, above time, beyond time, all that God has decided according to His good and perfect will with nothing outside of Him compelling Him to decide that which He decides, that eternal will, as it's spoken so wonderfully of in Ephesians 1, comes to gradual realization throughout the events of human history. And it is providence, so to speak, that brings that eternal will of God into gradual realization. And of course, the eternal will of God all is focused upon the consummation of all things with the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what is providence doing but bringing us throughout the months and days and years of human history from the eternal decree of God to the final consummation of all things. And that's why providence is so wonderful for the Christian. But before we get into that consolation, there is something of a question when it comes to providence. We want to look at that a bit in our second point. And here we would especially, not exclusively, but especially address perhaps young people who are going to be going off to college and university. You may be confronted, although we're all confronted at some level, a practical level, with this basic question. If God is good, and if God is sovereign, why does evil exist? It's one of the biggest philosophical questions. Whence evil? Why is there evil? How are these truths compatible? Because what's going to happen, young people, is you're going to come, hopefully anyways, with your conviction 
in your heart that you believe that there is one sovereign God who rules over everything and whose providence is over everything. And perhaps unbelieving persons, those who doubt and mock and scoff Christianity, they will pull up the Marxism and all of the atrocities and of the communism and all of the camps, and they will pull up the examples from human history and say, well, what then about Hitler and the Third Reich? And what then about the chambers of death? And you and I must be able to interact with those accusations. And we must be able to give an answer for the hope that we have in light of all of the painful realities. On a more personal level, and a more practical level, Why do family members die far too young from our perspective? Why does there have to be the struggling and the battles with cancer? Why sometimes do children get deathly ill? Or accidents take someone in the prime of their life? Here we have to admit humbly we do not know all of the answers. But we do know some things towards an answer. And in giving an answer, we need to be careful to do two things. The first thing we need to be careful to do is to follow Scripture. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 is a verse that we all ought to commit to memory. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children. Now we begin to peer into the secret things and God has revealed some aspects of these secret things. Not all of the aspects. So we follow Scripture. We also do so recognizing our own human limitations. If you look at what's written there in the Belgian Confession on the top of page 166, we do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into that which surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend. We must come to the doctrine of providence as we come to all doctrines with a posture of childlike humility knowing knowing that we will not be able to perfectly comprehend the ways of God. In many ways, it's just like a child. Now my children are they're growing older, but I can remember when they were younger and we'd be driving to our grandparents' house, their grandparents' house, my parents' house. Uh, and sometimes they would pipe up from the back of the vehicle and they would say, are you sure this is the way to Grandpa and Grandma's house? Doesn't look like the way, Dad. Doesn't seem like the way, Dad. I don't know, Dad. I think maybe you're lost. And if I was in a favorable mood, I would say, don't worry. I've driven to Grandpa and Grandma's house quite a few times. I know where we are, and I know where we're going. If I wasn't in such a favorable mood, it would be more like, just be quiet. And I'll prove to you when we pull into the driveway that I know where Grandpa and Grandma's house is. Now, thankfully, our Heavenly Father is always kind. But sometimes when we begin to peer too deeply into the mysterious elements of God's providence, we need to be reminded our Father knows exactly where we are. And He knows exactly where we're going. And He knows the best way to get there. 
So we can say, I believe, four statements of truth concerning this question of a good and a sovereign God and the existence of evil. The first thing that we can say is that providence does govern evil. Evil, the existence of evil, the actions of evil, even persons who are characterized by evil, they are not outside of the providence of God. But rather, they are under the providence of God. And you might go so far biblically to say they are within the providence of God. And that's why Joseph makes that statement he makes. You'll notice when he says what he says in Genesis 50, verse 20, he's acknowledging that providence does govern evil. He says, but as for you, you meant evil against me. He doesn't say, you know, I think maybe you really meant this for good. He understood his brother's intentions. And those intentions were pure evil. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You might also think of Acts 2, verse 23, uh, the sermon of the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. And he says in relationship to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in Acts 2, verse 23, Him, that is Jesus Christ, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, which let us be clear about, was the most evil act ever undertaken by men. Happened according to the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Peter, of course, goes on and says, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. So providence does govern evil. Uh, The second truth statement that we can support from the Word of God is that God uses the evil. God uses the evil. In His infinite knowledge and His infinite power and wisdom, God uses evil and uses even sinful acts of human beings in order to accomplish His divine purposes. In order to fulfill His eternal decrees. And and again, you can just reference the two verses that I just gave you. Genesis 50, verse 20. As they in some ways foreshadow what would happen to the Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph says, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. God uses evil to accomplish good. The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The Romans and the Sanhedrin and the Jewish... Uh, individuals who were there shouting out, crucify Him! Crucify Him! They meant evil. But on that day of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, God meant it for good. So evil men do evil things, but in doing evil things, they are underneath the sovereign providence of an Almighty God who accomplishes good. The third thing that we would quickly say in connection with that is that God is free from evil. He's not underneath the power of evil. He's not underneath the influence of evil. He is not morally culpable for the evil. What do we mean by that? God is not morally responsible for the evil actions that take place underneath His sovereignty. And this also you can clearly see from what is stated in Acts 2, verse 23. Peter makes no doubt about it that God sovereignly determined that Jesus Christ would be crucified, but lawless hands of human agents took Jesus Christ and crucified Him. And that is where the moral culpability was to be laid. James 
Also mentions something of this in James 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He Himself tempt anyone. One little note of application in connection with this point. Let no one ever abuse the doctrine of providence and say, well, I will do evil and God will make good come out of it. That's just foolishness. And it's bad theology. We follow after the commandments of God. We don't seek to somehow do evil in order to accomplish the secret will of God. God has clearly shown us what we are to do and how we are to live. God is free from evil. Man is liable for evil. Now that's the fourth point of truth. So we have providence governs evil. God uses evil. God is not responsible morally for the evil, but man is liable for the evil. Joseph's brothers were morally responsible for the sin of hatred and of in essence taking of Joseph's life. The, the hands that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ were morally responsible for the acts of sin. And that also points to the necessity of the Gospel and of repentance and of faith. Jesus Christ, you well know, looked upon the crowd who had assembled together as He was crucified. And the first word that always amazes me of the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, and no one understands providence better than Jesus Christ. And no one has ever been more misaligned, mocked, ridiculed, hated, and scorned than Jesus Christ. But what was the first word of prayer from the cross? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. And on the day of Pentecost, individuals cried out in repentance and faith and were saved and were added unto the church. Jesus Christ understood providence. And so He bore nor bitter grudges, but offered an effectual intercessory prayer so that hands that crucified Him might be connected to hearts that asked for forgiveness from Him. And that, of course, is the Gospel call to any and all who hear these words. We all have committed evil acts. Now maybe we comfort ourselves by saying, well, I'm no Hitler, I'm no Stalin. Well, in our hearts, we have murdered our tens of thousands. But there is forgiveness with God that He might be feared. And that brings us into the consolation and connected with providence, our third point. Uh, the consolation or the comfort really can be aptly summarized by quoting Romans 8, verse 38 and 39. And there the Apostle Paul, of course he writes this underneath inspiration, but he also writes this as a man who, like Joseph, knew experientially in a powerful way the truth of providence. And Paul also, if you look at his life, he could have died a bitter old man. He could have said, the things I have suffered, the beatings that I have endured, the people who have forsaken me. He could have wrote these letters of just vehement disgust with people who had failed him. 
But he understood providence. Sure, there were people who had meant evil against Paul. But God meant it for good in order that many might be saved. And so Paul is able to write, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I would submit to you tonight the only way that that verse can be true is because of God's sovereign providence. How else can you write that? And how else can a Christian quote that? How can I know that there is nothing on earth or in heaven or in hell that will be able to separate me from the love of God? I mean, there are powerful forces at work in human agencies. Uh, You think of the the, the rise and the fall of empires. And then if you add to it what we considered in the third point last Sunday evening, the demonic activity. How can I? How can I be absolutely certain that the forces of hell cannot separate me from the love of God? I know how finite I am. I know how weak I am. I know how similar I am to Peter. And maybe you do also. There's Jesus Christ in His powerful glory walking upon the water. And in one moment our faith is vibrant and energetic and so we leap out of the boat and we give this remarkable profession of faith and we're walking on water. And then... And then we look at life circumstances. And we drop like a lead anchor. So the question is, how can I know that nothing will be able to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Providence. Many mean evil against us. And as the Christian church in the 21st century in the Western world, we're going to have to become more aware, consciously aware, that many mean evil against us. And maybe you personally have experienced that. Maybe you can think this person and that person This was said, and that was said, and they meant evil against me. Although, never forget the second part of what Joseph says. But God meant it for good in order to accomplish salvation. Now, that in no way discredits the reality of sin or the necessity of repentance or the moral culpability of those who sin against us. But this world is not for us. The fallen angels are not for us. They are against us. But they can never separate us from the love of God because of this truth, this wonderful truth of providence that we belong to our Heavenly Father. Just as Joseph did. Whether it was at that breakfast table as he told his dream, or whether it was in the pit as he awaited the outcome of his brother's diabolical plot, or whether it was upon the journey down eventually into Egypt as he sat languishing in a prison, nothing could separate him from his father's love. Not his earthly father, but his heavenly father. Because he was united 
by an active living faith to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, now those who are apart from Jesus Christ, they have every reason to be filled with fear and dread. Unless they would repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's being united with Christ by an active exercise of faith. That there is this safety and security both now and forevermore. And so there are deists in our world. There are Epicureans in our world. There are Stoics within our world. There are secularists and humanists. All who pretend that they have all of the answers. And they would throw the questions at us. Our faith is a simple, childlike faith. We believe in God the Father. And if you... Recite the Apostles' Creed to yourself in your head. There's one little but massive word after we say every Sunday, nearly every Sunday, I believe in God the Father, Almighty. That's our consolation. That gives us strength for today. And that ought to give us a bright hope for tomorrow. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You that You are our Father for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ and that You are an all-knowing Father and an all-powerful Father. Lord, we do confess that many times we are, as little children, filled with doubts and questions about Your ways and about Your works. We ask that by our consideration of Scripture tonight and by the Spirit's blessing of that consideration that our oftentimes troubled hearts might be calmed and quieted, that we might rest and that we might be still, and that we might know that You are God and that You will be exalted among the nations. And so this is our prayer this evening for Christ's sake. Amen.